Our scripture uh, reading this morning is taken from uh, 1 Kings uh, chapter 17, and I'm going to be reading uh, from verses 8 to 24. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said. But first bake me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent And the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither the jug of oil became became empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, just thanks for the opportunity to worship here this morning. Thanks for the beauty of your people gathered together to lift up your name. But Father, we need to hear your voice. We need to hear your voice speak into our lives. So we pray that as we reflect on your scripture now, we would feel the presence of your spirit and we would heal your voice. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Earlier this week, I don't know if you saw this, but the the Wall Street Journal uh, published an article that at least caught my eye and caught uh, a lot of people's eye because of the title. And the title says, When to Let Your Children Quit. It was an eye-catching title because most parents, at least we do, most parents don't ever really like to teach our children that it is okay to quit. 
But the article uh, talked about just how committed kids seem to be today. There are flute lessons and piano lessons and basketball practices and drama clubs and yoga for kids. There are just so many opportunities for young kids nowadays. And the tendency for kids and also for parents, well-meaning parents, is to try to expose their kids to all these things. And the challenge is not to have their kids overcommit. But what the article tried to do is it, it tried to kind of speak into the madness. It, it tried to, to spit into the cultural wind, as it were, and suggested that it was okay sometimes for our kids to commit, to, to, quit, to, to quit things. What it did was it, uh, it presented an alternative voice or a, a testimony to the contrary that we sometimes need as people who often get swept up into the cultural winds without even realizing it. We often need a wake-up in our lives. This has been true from the beginning. The cultural winds have blown, and it's just easy for all of us to go along with the, the cultural moment that we are caught in. It has always been that way, and that is why, from time to time, we sometimes need a voice that speaks into our lives. Well, the Old Testament uh, follows in a very unique and interesting way through lots of powerful stories and illustrations and history. It tells the story about God's special relationship with the people of Israel. God had a, a very unique relationship with this particular nation. It didn't mean that their relationship was exclusive, but it was a unique relationship that in some ways pictures For you and I today, what life lived in a relationship with God really looks like. And the nation of Israel certainly had its moments when it was caught up in the winds of culture. Moments where the nation itself didn't look any different than the other nations that surrounded them. And God had an answer for this. He had a way of speaking into it. He would send prophets, prophets who would provide an alternative voice or a testimony to the contrary. These were men that were given a a unique message from God, often a very disruptive message, but a unique one that they would be responsible to then go back to the people and communicate that message. One commentator said that they would often reframe reality or find a way to undermine the the cultural definitions of what reality really is. And sometimes they would offer this message in very straightforward ways. And other times they would would communicate the message in, in very imaginative or unique ways as well, sometimes bizarre And it was up to the people to to listen to the message and then to heed the voice of God that was in their midst. But often the prophets prophets were ignored, they were were persecuted, they were hated for their message. And when we think about it, we would have probably done the same thing as the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Because we often don't like disruptive voices. We don't like those voices in our lives because we'd rather go right along living with the winds of culture. We don't want 
to listen to a voice to the contrary. It's always just easier to go along with the patterns of the world. But sometimes, sometimes, that voice is the very voice we most need to hear. And the same was true in the Old Testament for God's people. Over the the next couple weeks, what I'd like to do is, is look at the story of two different prophets in the Old Testament, Elijah and Elisha. And hopefully what we'll see is the significance of their story and their message and what it means for us as believers in Jesus Christ to live out the message of the gospel in a culture and a world in which we live in. This morning we were, we were introduced to the first of those prophets, the prophet of Elijah that we uh, read about in this story from 1 Kings chapter 17. And in this particular narrative, we really see the presence of God in the darkest of times and how that presence brings about abundance in little and brings life in the place of death. The first thing that we really see in our passage is the the presence of God in the darkest of times. When you uh, look at the the history of Israel, what you discover is that the darkest, really the darkest time in Israel's history was when a certain king, a king named Ahab, was the king of this nation. Right off the bat, the scriptures tell us that Ahab did evil. He did evil more than any other king that had ever gone before him. In the ancient world, it was customary for whenever uh, uh, treaties were made amongst nations or tribes, they would often uh, be solidified by a marriage. And that was true uh, for King Ahab as well. King Ahab decided to, to have an alliance with a, a people called the Sidonians. And uh, as, a, as a token of that alliance, he was going to marry the daughter of the king of the Sidonians. And that daughter's name was Jezebel. You may have heard of her before. Israel had had a different time all throughout, a difficult time all throughout its history, worshiping only one God. They were always tempted to worship the gods of the nations around them. And when Jezebel arrived in the nation, all of that changed in a very intense way. She introduced the worship of, of Baal, who was known to be the storm god of the, the ancient world. She introduced the worship of Baal in a way that was far more intense than any uh, other king or any other person had done before. The scriptures tell us she brought with her about 400 prophets of Baal and 450 prophets of Asherah. And she went all throughout the nation of Israel and set up temples to these foreign gods all throughout the nation. And the effect of that was the nation, by and large, no longer worshipped Yahweh. They no longer worshipped the one true God, and they'd given themselves over almost entirely to the worship of Baal. In effect, they looked no different than any other nation or culture that was around them. So God had to do something. He had to, to get their intention in some way. And as difficult as it can be, often God needs to send disruptions. 
not just in the ancient world, but also in our lives. God needs to send disruptions in order to get our attention. These disruptions can come in many forms, but they are all ultimately evidence of God's love in our lives. They are evidence that he hasn't given up on us, that we haven't become too messy for him and he now needs to walk away. They are evidence that he is devoted to us and loves us. So God sends Elijah to Ahab and Elijah goes into Ahab's presence and says, for as long as this nation continues to look the same as every other nation around us, as long as we continue to be caught up in the cultural winds and worship Baal, then there will be no rain in the land and there will be a severe drought. This was a tragic irony at its best because the very God they worshipped, the God of Baal, was known to be the God of rain. He was the God who was present in the the power of storms and brought about the fertility and the, the food that came from that. And here God is stepping in and saying, there will now be no more rain. And as a result, there was no more food for the people as well. It became so severe that many scholars believe that the nation of Israel was beginning to think about cannibalism because the drought had become so severe. It's just a picture of how very dark a time this was for God's people. And yet, by virtue of Elijah's role, God was still present in the darkest of times for his people. You see, prophets in the ancient world were were visible reminders that God had not given up on them. That God had not walked away or been repelled by their messiness. Instead, the prophets were a visible and a physical reminder that God was still there. He hadn't given up on them. He was still amongst them. Friends, you and I can go through all sorts of difficult times in our lives. Maybe you would look at your life right now and saying, I'm going through a very difficult or a very dark time in my life. Maybe it's a time where we have walked away from God or we are kind of reaping the consequences of of going our own way. But what this story reminds us is that if we are God's, if we are his, if we are his children, then we can be assured that he is present even in our messiness. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us, even if our mess is our own doing. He's not repelled by our messiness and by our sin. Instead, he is present with us. The story tells us something about that presence of God. It tells us something about what that presence looks like. The first thing we see is that the presence of God brings abundance out of little. It brings abundance out of little. The prophet Elijah is told to go, he's told by God to go and find a widow and to take up residence with this widow. Now, a widow in in the ancient world was always in an incredibly vulnerable position. In the ancient world, men were considered to be the breadwinners of society. They were the source of social capital in the ancient world. And that meant that if you were widowed, then you were exposed You would often have to live in isolation at the very bottom of the social ladder and you would have no means in order to better yourself. So this woman and her son were incredibly vulnerable in the society in which they lived. 
And the passage tells us that when the prophet found her, that she and her son were on the brink of death. Verse 12 tells us that that they were gathering sticks in order to go home and cook their very last meal so that she and her son could die in peace. She tells the prophet that she had one jar of flour and one jug of oil left. And Elijah looks at her and says, do not fear. You will not run out of food. And for as long as Elijah was with her, the jug never ran dry and the flour was never spent. You see, the presence of God brings about abundance in the presence of very little means. One commentator said that he, God, is the source of plenty in a world that is defined by scarcity. But the second story that we read tells us something else about the presence of God. It tells us that the presence of God brings life out of death. In verse 17, we learn that the widow's son had taken ill and that he had passed away as a result. And the widow confronts Elijah after her son dies, virtually saying, your presence in my life has caused this. Ever since you showed up, nothing but trouble and hardship has come my way. You have brought me nothing but hardship and pain. And Elijah calmly looks at her and replies, give me your son. And he takes this lifeless boy into his arms and he goes up into the boy's bedroom lays him on his bed. And the passage tells us that he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let the child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again. You see, friends, the presence of God brings life out of death. The widow responds with a very profound response. She says, Now I know that you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. You see, for that widow, this was an authentication. It authenticated the message and exemplified to her that the presence of God was not just in the darkest time of her society, but also in the darkest moment of her life. Friends, it's interesting that in the darkest of times in this passage, God showed up in a miraculous way. But what it tells us is that God showed up in a very obscure place. You see, these miracles were not performed uh, in the halls of the king. They were not on display for the entire nation to see. They were done in the presence of a social outcast on the fringes of society to people who were on the brink of death. And what the gospel tells us is that hundreds of years later, God would show up again in another dark time. And he would make himself manifest to another woman who was on the bottom of the social ladder. But this time, God showed up himself. He came in the form of a baby, born in obscurity to Mary and Joseph. His life, Jesus' life, would be a sign that God brings abundance at a very little means. Think of the boy who came to Jesus with just five loaves of bread and two fish. And an hour later, 5,000 people 
went home with their stomachs full. But Christ's life would also be a sign that God brings life out of death. Mark 5 tells us about another bedroom scene. This one held, this one is about, was about a little girl. And it was about a little girl, the daughter of a synagogue ruler who had died. And Jesus whispered into her ear in the bedroom. And she got up and walked that day. Luke chapter 5 tells us about another widow whose son died. And Jesus said to her, do not weep. And then he raised her son from the dead. And all who saw it said, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And after raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You see, Jesus, the great prophet, came not just to speak the message of the gospel, but he also ultimately came to accomplish it. The gospel message tells us about the presence of God in the darkness of our hearts. It tells us that our hearts, due to sin and rebellion, are dark and they are lifeless. We have become estranged from God, awaiting the just condemnation that we deserve. And then God shows up in the person of Jesus. But the gospel also tells us that God brings abundance out of little. It tells us that we have nothing to offer God, no goodness of our own, no righteousness to stand on, no way of earning our way back to God, but the gospel brings us the abundance of blessing in Jesus Christ. Finally, the gospel tells us that God brings life out of death. Towards the end of of Christ's ministry, the gospel tells us that Jesus himself was betrayed He was arrested, he was beaten and and tried like a common criminal and ultimately executed on the cross. He had his own body stretched out upon the cross. Because of his death and resurrection, you and I can experience life. He is the source of life in a world where death is final. Friends, because Jesus suffered the ultimate darkness, then you and I are invited into the light. Because Jesus experienced ultimate want, we can have abundance. And because Jesus experienced death, you and I can experience life. All of this is made available to you and I by faith in the great prophet, by faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.